0: this is Charles Hain, here doing a special interview with D.P. Oren Soffer, who shot The Creator, probably the most talked about cinematography event of the year. And this is the spoiler episode, meaning we're going to talk about this movie assuming you've all seen it. It is out. It opened last weekend. You can all have seen it. If you are filmmaking nerds, you probably saw it opening weekend. So we're going to talk about <laughs> it as if you know what we are talking about. If you haven't seen it, come back next week. Go watch it this weekend.
1: Oren, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, my pleasure. I'm excited to chat with you. Awesome. So I guess where should, we, I mean,
0: there's like so many places we could start with this. Obviously, the thing everyone wants to start with is the FX3. Yeah, The FX3 is interesting, but there were so many other interesting cinematography decisions I feel like you made on this project. But first off, tell us like about the movie and how you came to be working on it before we do any of the techie stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the movie is uh, the new film by Gareth Edwards, directed by Gareth Edwards, who directed Rogue One and uh, Godzilla, and prior to that, Monsters, which was his debut film. And it's probably the most relevant film in his his filmography to this one. I came aboard the project through Greg Fraser, who is my co-cinematographer on the film. Greg had been prepping and sort of discussing the project with Gareth for quite a while. And Greg, of course, shot Rogue One. So that's that was where their connection came from. And they had been really discussing this project since then in some form or another, even before it existed in script form, and talking about sort of just addressing the inefficiencies of big-budget filmmaking and questioning, like, what can we do to make this process more akin to the process by which Monsters was made? but maintain the big scale and the big canvas. Like how can we basically get the best of both worlds from the low budget indie world and like all of the advantages that come from that and the freedoms but still have the advantages and support system of a bigger budget film, more shooting days, more resources and that kind of thing. And like finding that middle ground. So they'd been talking about that for years and sort of questioning like some of the conventions of a bigger budget filmmaking. By the time this shoot actually came around, it overlapped with this this little other movie that Greg was working on something desert something I don't know I don't I don't remember something with sand boom but yeah that sounds familiar I don't know people will see it at some point it comes out next year you'll tell me but uh, yeah so he he got a little bit busy with prepping that other film and and so he couldn't be on set for the creator anymore. So he called me up and we, we we had a prior relationship and I've been very kind of fortunate to be able to call Greg a, a mentor. And uh, yeah, he offered me this sort of interesting co-DP position on this film where he was going to stay on to help prep and kind of continue the conversations and the the design and the prep work that he'd been doing with Gareth, but would not be able to physically be on set for the shoot. So that's where, that's where I came in. And uh, yeah, that's how all of this came about. And the film is... Again as you mentioned in the intro, hopefully people have seen it since we're we're going to discuss it at length, but if you haven't, definitely go check it out. It's an original sci-fi film, not based on IP, not a sequel, not a reboot, not a franchise, and that is very exciting I think for the state of film, especially sort of studio filmmaking as it as it exists today. And it was very exciting for me to be a part of it since I've Grown up, like loving movies and being—I'm a a big sci-fi nerd. So yeah, like this kind of project was a dream come true in that regard.
0: Well, and it's sort of an interesting project because, like, I really love Gareth Edwards and, like, I love Rogue One and I love what happened with Andor. Andor is an amazing show. Yeah. But Rogue One—One of the beauties of Rogue One was it was like this standalone, independent. The characters can die at the end. Like, like we, like it was a fun thing in Star Wars. It was an exciting Star Wars movie because it didn't have to be tied into everything else. Yes. And now this year, we have something building on Rogue One, which is Andor. And Andor's great. It's probably my favorite show of the last year. Really loved Andor. But it's like, you you have these canvases that keep getting painted and keep getting painted and keep getting painted. And it's really exciting to see someone who, within Star Wars, did a fresh canvas, do a fresh canvas with the creator that, like, you know, it's, it's not trying to launch an IP. It's just a movie the way... Star Wars in '77 was a movie, or like so many other movies we love from the '50s, '60s, and '70s, were just a movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I I couldn't agree more. And it's it's definitely very rare these days. And you know, I I I hope it continues to to find an audience and people continue to discover it. You know, frankly, the box office numbers were decent minus on it. Definitely would have been nice uh, if it if it did a little bit better. But, you know, it is what it is. And I think it's, it's out there in the world now and it belongs to the audience. And I think the audience will discover it. And, and we all just still feel very proud to have put it out in the, into the world, considering, yeah, how much of a rarity it is these days. But it, it's definitely designed to harken back towards those kinds of movies, sci fi from the 70s and 80s that, w- that we all kind of grew up and love. And I think it exists that way as a film, but it also the 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 visual and cinematography choices were also designed to harken back to that that kind of filmmaking.
0: Well, I was gonna I I was gonna say next, sort of pivoting to that, like you're like everyone's been talking about the cameras, yeah, but I wanted to talk about the lenses first, yeah, because I felt like it was so nice to see film so if, if, if you haven't worked much with VFX, you'll, you'll know that one of the, the frustrations we run into with VFX all the time is VFX people are often pushing for very clean glass. They want clean lenses, and they're like, let us have clean images, and then we'll fuck them up in post. But you guys, what did you shoot on?
1: Yeah, so lensing-wise, we shot 95% of the movie on a single focal length, which is the Koa uh, Cine Promenar, two times anamorphic, 75 millimeter. So these are yeah. vintage Japanese effects from the 70s that have been rehoused. So, you know, they have modern mechanics and, and lens gears and all of that. But the the source glass inside the lens is is that kind of vintage 70s glass that was used on on quite a few films at the time.
0: And, and is in, like, you are baking the look into the image. Yes. It is not something where you can then detune the Koa look in post. It's there. It's in the footage. VFX has to work around it. And VFX worked around it seamlessly, it looks like.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, That was sort of one of the big conceits of the of the project. Like the visual effects approach was very much designed to fit the footage and not the opposite. And that was really important for Gareth and for everybody involved. That the way to, you know, it it, it's it's almost a bit of an irony because I think when VFX drive those kinds of creative decisions for example like you have to shoot on really clean lenses and we need 8k and we need all these you know we need as many pixels as we can and we need high dynamic range and we need all these all these technical specifications to give us the most the most flexibility us being the visual effects artists it can result in very antiseptic looking imagery like there's an artificiality to all of these decisions that we make shooting with sharp lenses shooting with deeper stops shooting with you know higher resolution sensors shooting with Lower ISOs, like cleaner images, cleaner noise floors, like all of those decisions have a technical backing, but they also they all of them affect the image aesthetically. And, and I think ultimately, like making aesthetic decisions is really what we're doing. You know, that's what filmmaking is. That's what cinematography is, that's what directing is, and visual effects dovetail into that. Now I have to give credit to ILM. Well, actually, I'll backtrack for a second. I, I I don't want to throw any visual effects people under the bus because I understand why those requests are made is it's to protect your own job and sanity so that, you know, you don't have to do all this extra work in order to like fit, you know, these sort of quote unquote flawed, broken, funky aesthetics, but good visual effects, I think go that distance. And ILM, who worked on this project on the visual effects side, like completely understood that from from square one. They were totally on board with what Gareth wanted to do with the the overall approach of designing the visual effects to the footage and not the opposite. So not letting the visual effects tail wag the dog, which is typically the case on, on bigger budget projects. And really let the photography lead and design visual effects to the photography, which includes basically a process that they do of mapping the lens. So, you know, they have a robust process of basically mapping the flaws, the optical flaws of the lens so that they can then recreate them for visual effects. But, you know, we definitely helped them out quite a bit by shooting on one lens because typically they have to map every single lens that you shoot on. And so I think we definitely made their job easier in that regard. But ultimately the tools are there to to, to do that. You know, the tools are there to create visual effects that integrate those kinds of flaws, and I think that the the best filmmakers, like like if you go back and watch Steven Spielberg movies post CG, like Jurassic Park is sort of the exception because it was the first foray, but like watch Saving Private Ryan, watch you know Minority Report, uh, War of the Worlds, like the way that Spielberg shoots movies and lenses movies, and the way that ILM integrates visual effects is all about like lens flares and veiling and, 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 and optical flaws. And like, they lean into that because they know and they realize that that's actually how you create visual effects that feel more real and feel more organic and feel like maybe that was captured in camera because all of those optical flaws and flares and all those things, like those are, those are elements that we as an audience are used to seeing in camera, right? So in, 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 you know, in camera photography. And so when, when, visual effects are integrated into that it it helps the illusion it helps you ask and question like oh maybe that isn't a visual effect maybe maybe they actually did build a 50 foot tripod you know to trounce around and smash buildings in boston and 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 you know what a lot of the building smashes are real they're plate photography or miniatures and some of them are cg and so you know and it ends up being a whole mix and it, it's really the same with with this movie it's just a continuation like i think ilm especially have really been at the forefront of that that kind of visual effects approach. So, yeah, it was really, really cool that they, they, ne- we never had that conversation like, oh, pl- please, please shoot on cleaner lenses. Like, that never came up because they understood the aesthetic goals that Gareth had in mind.
0: Well, that's particularly exciting because, like, it's an $80 million movie, but for this kind of movie, that's still an independent movie. And at the top end, mapping a lens and everything is totally normal. But I always feel like when you're on the lower budget thing, that's when they'd like it cleaner because it does add render time to every shot if they're also rendering in the sort of like reverse lens map it does. on everything. And the fact that like, even on this, I also feel like computer horsepower is getting to the point where we're, we will all be mapping our lenses on our MacBook Pros relatively soon. One question I did have though, vintage lens, modern rehousing.
1: Did you have lens data in the modern rehousing? No, no, there's no lens data. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so that, it just... It, 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 the modern rehousing is really just about the, the the mechanics, so it's the lens gear, the front element, all of those things. But but yeah, there's no electronic lens data in this in this situation.
0: <laughs> wow, that yeah. is for for the number of VFX shots to have. Just for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, there's some modern lenses, Zeiss, a few other brands, where you can plug a little cable in, or it'll even pass with some cameras automatically with the metadata, where it'll record your iris and your focus distance. Which can be very useful if you're doing a rack focus and you want the VFX to also match that rack focus. Presumably you were able to record that with your external follow focus system when you really needed to.
1: Or maybe yeah, you I mean didn't. The, 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 the thing is this, like again, we simplified so much of our visual approach on this film that a lot of these data points were actually already consistent and resolved throughout the entire film. So like F-stop, we shot wide open the entire movie. We were at a two-eight consistently. So that never changed. So oh, wow. you know, that, that's that's one easy data point to just like put into every shot. Focus info, you're absolutely right. You can actually get that from the follow focus, which we did.
0: So that is, ha- and then that is flowing to ILM.
1: That's exactly right. And then, you know, th- we also are still in a world where at some point we'll evolve past this, but we're still in a world where our, our amazing camera teams keep physical logs and camera reports of each shot, which note... All of this information, including focal distance, to the best of their ability. And yeah, so, you know, it's it's all backed up as much as possible, pretty much. What,
0: what's interesting about hearing that 95% of the movie was that one lens is I now I kind of want to uh, interview someone in the VFX team because I bet they got to know that lens really well by the end of VFX. Like, I bet there were little things that it would do that would surprise them where they're like, ah, I know this lens at this point and I know it's going to bend in this way. Oh, 100%. In a way you normally don't.
1: I would love to hear that interview because <laughs> I, I never really discussed that with them. But yeah, talk to Charmaine Chan or Jay, Jay Cooper, our overall VFX soup. They could probably talk about this. But yeah, and we did throw them a bit of a curveball. I mean, it wasn't a curveball. We knew this in advance, but we had three versions of the 75 millimeter. So because of the way that we shot, we had multiple camera rigs built at any given time. And sometimes we shot two camera. But often it was single cam, but the idea was to be able to quickly move from one rig to the other without any reset time. So basically, we had one camera that was built on a handheld gimbal, one that was built on a a scissor crane, one that was built on a little Kessler dolly, one that was like on a drone, one that was fully handheld without a gimbal, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had three copies of the 75 millimeter to sort of swap around between those different rigs. Uh, now, if anybody knows anything about vintage lenses, it's that consistency is not a key component of vintage lenses. In fact, they're they can be quite inconsistent, even the same model lens and the same focal length, because they were, you know, handmade and, and not only handmade at the time, but also, you know, different lenses have gone through different things in sub- subsequent 40, 50 years since they were manufactured. So some have more wear and tear than others. Some end up having more chromatic aberration or more you know, mold in the lens physically, which can affect like contrast and all sorts of stuff. Like there's all these different elements that, and things that happen to, especially older lenses that affect their consistency. So we did have to keep very close track, of course, of which specific lens we were using on, on any given shot because they were all slightly different. But I would say the broad strokes, optical behavior of the lenses was all pretty much the same. The differences are minutiae. But uh, yeah, for visual effects, it is important to keep track of that.
0: That is, yeah, that's amazing. That, <laughs> I was actually going to ask how many different 75s you had.
1: Yeah, we had three.
0: Because um, there's probably yeah. not a lot of 75s available.
1: You know, the Koas are, are not uncommon. There's quite a few sets out there. So yeah, they're not, it's, these aren't rare lenses. And they're, they're also not particularly expensive. I, I would say most rental houses tend to have a set of Koa anamorphics. It's usually a four-lens set. Now, personally, I don't really love the wider lenses in the set and neither does Greg (laughs) and neither does Gareth because they distort on the edges in, in a way that's like a little bit too funky for us. There's this sort of squishing effect that happens on the 40 mil and the 50 mil, but the 75 mil is kind of a perfect focal length. Like they, that lens was in place by the time I came on board the project. So clearly Greg and Gareth had already done some testing and landed on it. But yeah, that lens was, was identified as, as a great hero lens, and I couldn't agree more. And there's also a 100 mil, but it's it's quite a bit slower. We we actually carried that as well. We did have the 100 mil. So there are a couple of shots in the movie that are on that. Like every once in a while, you just need a longer focal length. We also carried a 42 millimeter Atlas Mercury lens, which, which was a prototype at the time. So those lenses are are just rolling out now from Atlas, but we we were lucky to have a prototype. So that was our sort of wider option to cover that range. But, but really, I mean, the default was the 75, and I would say that it was 95% of the movie on, on that focal length.
0: Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the wider was. Uh, yeah. And interesting yeah. that it was the Mercury. Although yeah, I don't the remember a lot of wide lens shots, to be honest.
1: There aren't that many. And, and you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell because it's, we, we only really used it when the 75 was just too tight to for example like in some car interiors it's quite difficult to get like a full shot of the back seat of a car with so for example in the checkpoint sequence there's like a whole family of kids in the back seat so it's just physically impossible to get a shot from door to door of the back seat of the car with the 75 mil unless you were outside of the windshield which we, we did not want to do. We wanted to be in the car with them, so that's where the forty-two comes into play. But it, it doesn't necessarily scream wide-angle lens because it, there's so much else going on in the frame that you know it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have that that feel that you would get like if you were on, for example, like a close-up on a wide-angle lens is quite is is quite noticeable. But we never really shot close-ups that way or, or anything. It's only for certain wide shots or certain close quarters and things like that. So it doesn't necessarily stand out as like your typical wide angle anamorphic look like you would get on a Wes Anderson movie or something. Like he always shoots on like 28 mil, 35 mil anamorphics, which are quite wide, but he'll shoot close-ups on them, right? So then you get that that warpiness and that that roundedness and the distortion and all that, all that good stuff, which we love, but it's there was just it was not the look for for this movie.
0: Yeah, it would have been it it would have stood out. Whereas as you described it, I was like, Oh, I remember that shot clearly. And it does not feel unrelated to the rest of the
1: sequence. Exactly. It feels part of the cloth of the rest of that sequence. Yeah, exactly. That's that's We only really deployed the wider angle if it felt part of the cloth, like you said. So if, if it ever stood out or felt, you know, noticeably distracting, we would try to find a way to make it work with the 75.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So one thing that I want to talk the camera's fascinating. I love what's being around with the camera there's also a lot of beautiful lighting going on in the movie. And there's a wonderful thing that's happening with a, a visual design with blue and orange journey mm. that goes on throughout the film that like it's it's incredibly well controlled, but it's like very present in helping the storytelling. Can you talk to me about like lighting choices? Especially that like there's a warmth to the lighting that I don't usually think renders well on Sony mm. that I thought rendered really well on this film. And I was like, ooh, orange light looking good on Sony. This is fascinating.
1: <laughs> yes, well, that I think is definitely a major shout out to Photocam for the wizards behind the scenes in their color science department for figuring out how to how to capture that and how to tap into it. I mean it goes back to the ProRes RAW. Like ultimately the Sony of it all is a little irrelevant in that regard because it's the the ProRes RAW is what captured that data that enabled us to tap into it for the color grade to get that that orange tone, but but yeah, again we'll we'll get we'll get dave cole and and claire on on the show from photochem so that they can talk about about everything that went into this because there's a lot of fascinating conversations to be had in that regard but lighting wise yeah so you know the overall lighting philosophy was we really wanted to lean into natural light as much as possible we wanted the film to feel grounded and realistic and present and set in a real place that we could transport an audience to but we also wanted it to be cinematic so it's this it's finding that razor's edge of something that is naturalistic and realistic but also elevated and cinematic and and aesthetically pleasing so we looked one of our main reference points for that was baraka the the film baraka which is fully documentary a documentary film shot in a documentary style with available light but it's curated and it's designed and its aesthetic in this way that is just very pleasing and cinematic. And I mean, it's one of the most beautifully shot films ever, ever made. Uh, And of course, we looked at a lot of Terrence Malick as well. So the goal was for the film not to feel lit. Like it should feel, hopefully, like we're just the luckiest filmmakers in the world. And we, every location we walked into had beautiful lighting and the perfect far side key and perfect fall off and we just got really lucky. And of course a lot of work actually goes into creating those environments, but first and foremost we did let the environments lead the lighting. So we shot the film almost entirely on location. There's a, there's a few there's a little bit of work on stage here and there, but it's it's very location driven. And so the first question you ask when you get into onto a location is like what lighting is this already providing? What color is it? What is the What is the the quality of the light? What is the texture that it provides? And then the second question is, what do we need to add or subtract from that lighting in order to create a more curated lighting environment? So the way that we did that was we we didn't just use prosumer camera gear. We also used prosumer lighting and grip equipment. We wanted to keep the footprint small at all times. And we never wanted to show up to a space and say, all right, well, Nothing here is working for us, so black it all out and then set up a bunch of 18Ks on stands outside or big lighting rigs or anything like that. We didn't want to do any of that. That was not the nature of the shoot. That was not the pace of the shoot. That wasn't how we wanted to approach the crew size, the footprint, the the rhythm of, of filming, all of it. We wanted to be nimble and naturalistic and inspired by the locations and really leaning into that freedom and the spontaneity of that. So, aperture ended up being our big key into that. We we bought actually a, a bunch of aperture lights and that was our lighting package. We had a couple of 1200Ds, we had 600X, we had Novas which are basically their sky panels. We had B7Cs, the bulbs that screw into bulb sockets. We had MCs which were amazing. We used those a ton, little battery powered LED squares that you could just throw everywhere. We also had some Astera Titan tubes and Helios tubes, but that was really the lighting package and, and we really stuck to it. Every once in a while, we expanded. I mean, like I said, we did have some stage work where we got some HMIs and some space lights and, and the stuff that you would typically find. And, and of course, at Pinewood, we scaled up quite a bit. Like The Pinewood shoot was very much a traditional film. We had carts and carts and carts of cream source vortexes and digital Sputniks, which is the, you know, the lights that Greg likes. And, and bigger HMIs and lamp heads and 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 all that good stuff. That was gaffer Johnny Franklin led the London shoot. He was amazing. And in Thailand, it was a Thai Smith Smiths a Thai Thai based gaffer. But uh, yeah, we we kept a really small footprint and and the aperture approach was really key because these are low power draw RGB LED lights and combined with the FX three, which can shoot at twelve thousand eight hundred ISO you actually don't need very bright or punchy lights to get a bright and punchy light source on, on camera because the, the camera is so, so sensitive. So we really leaned into that. And yeah, having those sort of lightweight, easy to set up aperture lights was, yeah was, was pretty key to the overall approach. And we also, we've talked about this in some other interviews, but our get out of jail free card light was the Helios tube on a stick. So we had a boom pole with a Helios tube at the end of it in a little chimera. And our best best boy, Electric Nancy, would, would have that thing on her at all times. And we would often like call her in on the comms to sort of swoop in with that and, and just add in a, if we needed a little bit of shape or a little bit of more control for the key light, she would come in and sort of provide that for us. And that was, yeah, that was a very common approach. You can see it in a lot of the behind the scenes footage. You can see her in action, like chasing after Gareth with the light. It's, it's very entertaining. I mean, it was just a dance, really. It, it all became this one big dance.
0: Well, so you so you guys were not rolling up with like a bunch of ten ton trucks either. No, no. So you we could had- move more easily location to location because a location move is not a long wrap or a long setup.
1: Oh, exactly right. That was all part of the design of the film. So We wanted to keep the footprint as small as possible. I think I sort of touched on this earlier, but the real the main inspiration for it was Monsters, which was Gareth's first film that he shot completely guerrilla style, ten person crew, including himself and the two actors shot completely off the cuff throughout Central America and Mexico, driving around in a van, hopping out, paying somebody 20 bucks to shoot in their backyard, like very scrappy and very, very indie. And we, we tried to be inspired by that as much as possible, obviously on a bigger scale. We leaned into the big scale, but we wanted to maintain that ethos, that creative energy of, of that kind of filmmaking. I think it was just really important for Gareth's process, it's important for the way he works with actors, the way he thinks about movies, the way he sees the world through a lens, the conversations that he and Greg had been having about the sort of pitfalls of bigger budget filmmaking. And yeah, it all it all ended up sort of dovetailing into this unique approach of like, let's shoot this big movie as if it's this tiny road movie and make all of these decisions that allow us to do that. And and lend us that freedom and create the environment where we can just react and create in that pure, pure way. That's really how the whole movie was made.
0: Got it. So Hero Lens had already been settled on by the time you were sort of joining the project. Had the Hero camera already been settled on by the it time had. you were
1: joining the project? Yes, it had. It had. Um, that Gareth and Greg went through sort of a similar testing process to find the camera body. And, and really, I mean, the idea for it came from... Very simply, Gareth, Gareth shot a, a sort of pitch film for the movie before, before it got greenlit by the studio, where he traveled to six or seven countries in Southeast Asia with his producing partner, Jim, who also produced the film, on what was ostensibly a tech scout, or sorry, on what was ostensibly a location scout. And it was. And we actually did end up shooting in quite a few of the locations that, that were visited on that scout. But Gareth was also shooting that entire time. Uh, he was shooting footage. and he traveled with a Nikon DSLR, just very basic, with a little handheld gimbal, like lollipop style gimbal. and and he shot a ton of footage, just really, really beautiful footage. He had the seventy five millimeter koa, which he actually he actually purchased one. So he owns one of the three lenses that we shot on. And uh, yeah, he shot the most beautiful documentary footage on this scout. I mean, it was just stunning stuff in the most amazing places at the perfect time of day, fully natural light. And the concept was to then take that footage. He edited it down to about 10 minutes, put some music over it. It's completely non-narrative. It's purely just images and texture with real people in real locations. And he brought that footage to ILM and asked them to work with him to to sort of design and create a layer of sci-fi, as he calls it, on top of the footage. And he also brought it to the sound designers, E-squared, who worked on Godzilla. And they sort of filled out the sound design. And then he used that little film to to pitch the whole movie to to the studio. And that's how it got greenlit, was through that sort of proof of methodology, basically, that he did. And it it looks beautiful. I can't wait for people to see it. I am convinced that they're going to release it in some form on the Blu-ray or like online. And if they don't, everybody should Organize a. a, I I mean, I'll lead it the letter writing campaign to the studio to get this thing released because it's so beautiful and it's it's just kind of amazing to trace the DNA of the film back to this to this short, which was shot in 2019. I mean, it it was a number of years ago, and there's actually a number of shots from that short in the feature, quite a few, yeah, which is just great. They just fill out some of the texture and the world building. It's like some shots during the montages and that kind of stuff. So, anyway. Gareth basically had this DSLR on a gimbal and was like, I want to shoot the whole movie this way, you know, with this level of freedom. And so the search began for, you know, a a cinema camera that was capable of being configured in that way. And the FX3 is really kind of the only one for now. I mean, there will be others. There are already some others that are coming online. Fuji just put out the GFX2, which is has really amazing cinema capabilities. But yeah at the time and this was 2021, uh, yeah the FX3 had sort of just come out and they were like here it is this is exactly what we were looking for it's a cinema forward camera that can record raw 15 stops dynamic range 4K and it's the the form factor of a DSLR it's a mirrorless camera and and so that was it it was it was as simple as that and once the camera was identified and they confirmed that the you know quality of the footage was up to snuff which it which it was then that was it the decision was made i mean there's no there was nothing else to to consider really or discuss like is the camera well, in the summer of 21
0: there was nothing else like no, it?
1: no there wasn't there wasn't and you know i've had some people ask like why not the fx6 why not you know red red komodo why not these other cameras and the answer is they're just they're not small enough they're not they don't have the form factor of a dslr all of those cameras are bigger and not as easy to configure on a, on a handheld gimbal, a small, lightweight handheld gimbal, the way that we did the FX3, and that was really it.
0: Well, and that's the thing, too, is that a lot of those other cameras, I always like to, you know, when my students are like, well, why do, are these other cameras bigger? I'm like, well, they have a lot of tools to work with a bigger infrastructure. So they have full-size SDI, and they have full-size XLR, and they have full-size timecode, and they have a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But if you don't need those things... Then yeah, I mean at this point, a tiny little camera body where you can run timecode sync in, which you, uh, there's time timecode sync in on the FX3, I believe.
1: Yeah, it took sure us Sony. a minute to kind of figure out the workflow of it because obviously we had multiple camera bodies and you know, we're recording synced sound to an external recorder, so you know, it took a little bit of figuring out, but we figured it out, you know. That's the job of you know, we had 4 months prep. I mean, we had plenty of time, you know, and I, and I guess I'll, I'll sort of add that caveat which is like none of this was thrown together, you know, like this took like months of prep and planning and kind of trial and error and and designing like even just designing the the gimbal rig which is I've actually really enjoyed people have been sending me their sort of homemade versions which I I love seeing but uh, yeah that rig took us months to design like months and months and months of iterating and swapping out certain parts for other parts and swapping out certain accessories for other accessories and streamlining it and some parts are th- custom 3D printed and there's there's a whole lot that went just into this handheld gimbal rig to make it perfect and you know we were perfecting it right up until the final week of prep so you know all this to say is like we had the time to to troubleshoot and figure all this out like we didn't just pick up the camera and start shooting with it which was definitely an advantage and certainly an advantage of having the budget that we had and and the support you know and the team you know we had photochem backing us up on the post side. And we had the, just the best camera team in Thailand. And our, our, our DI team, Data Wrangler Cho, and, and our first ACA, all of them were just so good. And they coordinated with Sony, and they coordinated with Atomos, and they coordinated with PhotoCam. And everybody pitched in to kind of help figure out how to make this camera work for us in the way that it did. But, but yeah, by the time we started filming, everything was solved pretty much. So it was No, you guys were running no-brainer. RAW to the Atomos? We recorded ProRes RAW to an Atomos Ninja recorder. Yeah,
0: interesting. That is actually for for all of the press around it being Sony. I actually had not read an article talking about it being ProRes RAW.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, the internal codec on the FX three is 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 just not wasn't robust enough for what we needed to to do with it. It's it's quite limited in in its color depth, its bit depth. But ProRes RAW, is, it's just an incredible format. I mean. You know, when we put that stuff up side by side with like Alexa Log C footage, ninety-nine out of a hundred times, except in like the most extreme scenarios, you would be really hard-pressed to to see the difference. Like in pretty much every filming scenario, you're getting the same amount of of information, at least enough for you know the color grading and visual effects work that we needed to do. And and and, and that was ultimately what it came down to was was our Do we have enough information? Do we have enough data? And so where did yes. you end up
0: doing the final grade in?
1: <laughs> well, we did the final grade at Photocam, and I mean, we graded the ProRes. Like we went back to the ProRes RAW for the final grade.
0: So you would have been in Baselight because Resolve still won't touch ProRes RAW. Weirdly.
1: Resolve won't touch ProRes RAW. That's so right. You
0: were in. You were in. I mean, there's Resolve's not the only color grading software. There's Baselight. There's Nucoda, There's.
1: I and I have to admit, I, I can't sit here and say this confidently. <laughs> But yeah, one quick we can email also cut to Yeah, exactly. One quick email to Dave Cole our colorist could answer all questions and actually someone should interview him on a podcast cuz the color grading is is a whole hour long conversation on this project alone. Like uh, we did so much no work. No film
0: school would like to cover the creator to death. So <laughs> any intros you're willing to make? We will I will interview all of them. I was a colorist for a long time. I will talk to And Oh my
1: god, happily. We'll get Dave, we'll get Dave and Claire on the on the on the pod. That would be great. Um, that I would think be great. people Yeah, people maybe together, hear from them.
0: post-team, separate, whatever. We will keep talking to people about
1: this movie cuz the movie was great and beautiful.
0: Okay, so, you're shooting you're shooting FX3
1: to Ninja 5 inches? Yeah, 5-inch Ninja recorder. Got it. So, Gareth Getting is also Krora's operating role. off of that as a monitor. Awesome. Yeah, cuz Gareth was operating the camera. So the Ninja recorder also doubled as as his operator monitor. And then I was sat at a small HD 13-inch, three, I think, off to the side. So that was my kind of main monitor to make sure that, you know, I had basically the best quality image near set. And the Atomos image, not great, to be honest. It's not the best monitor in the world, but it, 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 did, it did the job. And it, it gives you enough of an image to be able to compose, but you're not lighting. To that monitor, but but you don't need to because I'm lighting and I have a good monitor, and so that's all that matters. Like Gareth just needs an, a monitor for operating; he just needs to be able to see the composition of the frame and and the elements in it, and the color accuracy and and even exposure accuracy on it don't really matter.
0: And then you know you've got a light meter and a thir- and a small HD 1303, so you should be away. You go and then. W- when there were multiple operators, were you on one of the cameras or yes. did you prefer
1: okay? No, no, I, I I operated the other one. It was that kind of film. I mean, it was the the shoot itself felt very much like an indie film a lot of times. Like even though we had I mean it was it was an indie film with a ninety-day shoot schedule and like a full stunt team and SFX and a VFX supervisor and all these amazing sci-fi costumes and 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 all and production design and all of that. But but the filmmaking process itself felt really scrappy in the best way possible like oh we want to get an additional angle i'll just grab one of the cameras and you know get an additional shot like it was so from the hip and off the cuff that it it was not one of these things where you have like multiple full stacked camera teams just standing around like waiting you know okay where's b camera going like it wasn't like that it was a lot more if i'm gonna guess
0: i'm gonna assume that Video village was primarily about a camera and that when B camera and C camera went up they didn't even necessarily flow to video village.
1: Oh 100%. They yeah. <laughs> yes, correct.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of great in a way because it's like it's A camera plus B and C as opposed to those jobs where like all six cameras have their own separate video and everything is and everything is getting scrutinized and
1: Yeah, it just wasn't like that. You know, it was it, there was a lot of trust involved in 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 the process in general. Like trust From Gareth that, you know, obviously, like I mentioned with the Ninja Recorder, you know, he's not seeing a really high quality representation of what the final image looks like. I'm seeing it on my monitor and then he sees it later in the dailies, which is great. It was almost somewhat hearkening back to like shooting on film in just that one very specific way where, you know, you're shooting through an optical viewfinder. So you don't really know what the final image looks like until you get the dailies back. So in some ways, that part of the process was kind of like that, at least for Gareth, which was kind of fun because the footage always looked better in the dailies than it did on his ninja recorder. So it was always like an upgrade, which, which I think is always what you want your director to feel like, oh, this looks better than I thought it did on set.
0: <laughs> so nice. Like, that was what was so great about film is the videotape was so terrible. Awful. And then yeah. you'd watch the transfer at Company 3 or you'd watch a projected dailies. I didn't get to do that that often. I'm not that old. And it yeah. looks so great, and everyone was so happy.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I think maybe sometimes we miss that when all of your monitors on set are like 4K, high resolution, like you're seeing exactly the image that you're recording. It kind of takes the, the that magic out of it a little bit. Everyone's kind of like, "Yeah, yeah it looks good. All right, move on." You know, you get so yeah. used to it. But you know, and there's obviously advantages of of that too. I don't want to I don't want to downplay the advantages of that workflow. But we didn't find that we needed it on this on this film. Honestly, the That trust, it was just going, it's just going back to that trust. Like that trust was there. The trust that we were going to nail exposure and lighting on our end, the trust from Video Village, the studio, our producers that, I mean, obviously they were getting a high quality version of the image, but even then, you know, you're in a tent outdoors, like with bright sun, it's still not quite the same as when you're watching the image on a high quality screen in a proper viewing environment. So even there, there's a little bit of leeway in terms of what you're seeing on set versus what your what the final image looks like trust that in the grade we would be able to 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 elevate everything to an even higher level of quality and 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 interest and and aesthetic you know color balance and all of that like there's a there was a lot of trust on the project i think that was maybe maybe one of the key things trust from greg you know having me on set and and him being remote and trusting in that collaboration and trusting that that i would be able to deliver and, and give Gareth what he needed as a director. So yeah, it was, it was just it was a very trusting environment very warm. And I found that to be very helpful for, for creativity. It, 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 it was just, it fostered a very positive environment. Uh, Which and I actually
0: think, leads me to an question, Which is like, how did you, you were coming into a pre-existing relationship. Greg right? yeah. and Gareth worked together a long time ago. How did you work? How, how was the process of building trust as the new member in that team?
1: I think it's, it's just this, I think it's like getting to know anybody, you know, everybody starts as a stranger to, to anybody else. And then over time you put in, you put in the time, you spend time together, you get to know each other. Gareth and I spent a lot of time together offset, like off the clock in prep because we were in Thailand together for four months, sort of sequestered at this hotel. There's not that much else to do. So we would go out to dinner or uh, a movie or uh, we spent a lot of time together scouting. I mean, a lot of the prep period, that four-month prep period was, was spent location scouting and tech scouting. And we shot all over the country in 80 locations. So you can imagine how much of that time was spent just traveling from one place to the other and sitting in a van, sometimes for hours. And we just spent a lot of time together. And you just gradually get to know a person, open yourself up. Laugh at their jokes, <laughs> uh, and get to know your taste. Get to know their taste. Now, Greg and I all, all also already had a pre-existing relationship, so I, I was I was not a stranger to to Greg. But yeah, I did have to get to know Gareth and get to know his style and and his taste. But we had such a long prep period that I think I think that was very advantageous for that. Again, it was How not long one have of those. you known Greg? Mm, I've known Greg for about six years, maybe seven years. How did you meet? We met at the ASC Awards. I was, I was a little baby DP who was there as a guest of Panavision, and, and he was there with, I think, Lion that year. I think he may have won, but yeah, I just struck up a conversation with him, and we kept in touch.
0: That's awesome. That yeah. is like a, Yeah, it's one of those things that just happened. It's just how one of those things his, that happened. <laughs> how did his remote collaboration work?
1: Well, it manifested in a few different ways. Uh, it was most robust during prep. We would talk pretty much every day about what, where we had scouted that day, what we're thinking of doing lighting wise. We would talk about equipment. What do we still need to order? What do we what What do we have that's working? Looking at test footage, coming up with our LUTs. During Christmas break, we met up in at Photochem in LA to look at a bunch of test footage that we had been shooting and start coming up with our color approach and, and creating our LUT and discussing how the lighting was going cuz so we were all, we were already testing our lighting approaches during prep as well and 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 then also a lot of time just with the three of us Greg and Gareth and myself on Zoom looking at reference images Gareth is one of the most well-researched directors I've ever worked with and and by the time I came onto this project there were just reams of reference images concept art stills from other films photography screenshots photos of magazines, images from Pinterest like he pulls from a lot of different sources and they're, they're very eclectic and he's very organized he has them all in folders like for different locations, what he's thinking and what he's inspired by. It's really great. It's a wealth of of inspiration to pull from. And we would go through them kind of one by one and at first we sort of narrowed them down, we would eliminate some that felt more irrelevant and then we would do some rounds where we would look at individual images and really analyze them. Like we would spend five, 10 minutes on just one image looking at like, oh, we really love the contrast in this image. Like we really, really let's bookmark this. Like there's something really nice about the contrast ratio here and and the, and the black levels, like just the, the, the depth of the blacks, like the richness, this is great. This is great. And then you'd look at another image and be like, huh, where's, where's this key light coming from? The lighting in this image is really interesting. Where, where let's reverse engineer it. Like, where's the key light? Where, where are they putting a light? like, what what makes this framework? We would just get really analytical, and it was just to understand what we liked, so that when we were in the situations we, when, where we were on the shoot, we could either we could either know where what to gravitate towards to easily find those things, or we would know what we needed to artificially create if we needed to build it ourselves. And then during the shoot, yeah, Greg, you know, was a resource for me. To bounce ideas off of, talk about upcoming lighting setups, consult about some thoughts and and concepts that we had about how we were going to approach certain scenes, continuing to troubleshoot technical issues, working with our partners, Photochem and Keslo, or other gear vendors or whatever else we needed to happen behind the scenes. He was able to look at our dailies projected. He was the only person able to to really see our dailies in, in a theater at Photocam and, and really start, you know, just keep us on track and making sure our, our exposures were good and, and seeing if we needed to make any adjustments. Like for example, we did end up adjusting our LUT three weeks into the shoot because there was just something coming back in the dailies that we weren't quite happy with in terms of the contrast levels. And so we redesigned the LUT a little bit and then things got a lot better uh, after that. There, but there, there's some shots from those first three weeks that I look at in the film and cringe, but nobody else would ever know because we shot so out of order that you couldn't you would never tell. And then obviously, of course, once we redesigned our our color science, we went back and redid or or regraded all the all that footage. We didn't reshoot any of it. So it all looks congruous with everything else, but you would never be able to tell. And yeah, that was basically it. And you know, we did some volume work and and actually we we did we also did some traditional stage work at Pinewood Studios at the end of the shooting schedule. So we were there for three weeks and we did some work on the volume and some work on a traditional stage. And Greg was really instrumental in, in sort of leading the setup for all of that, hiring the crew, pre-lighting the whole stage, working with ILM on our virtual loads and, and lighting our, our, our virtual environments and kind of just taking the lead on that stuff so that I, I was focusing on the, the day-to-day minutiae in Thailand. Greg was more big picture slash focusing on future projects related to the, to the film, of course. And, and, and we would talk about all of it. You know, we, would, we were all just involved at every level on everything. It was a real collaboration and, and a really rewarding experience for me, I would say. I would do it again in a heartbeat. That kind of collaboration is really, really special. It's just better to have two brains. I mean, two brains are better than one. It's, it, just, it really comes down to that. I mean,
0: two brains that are in alignment and are in sync and aren't fighting with each other and are working towards the better of the movie are absolutely, like, that sounds oh, amazing. Oh, 100%.
1: I'm I'm, yeah. I'm taking that for granted since that was yeah. the case with us. But obviously, that's not always the case. <laughs> was Was Greg ever on the ground in Thailand? Not in Thailand, no. The COVID wow. restrictions were just too um, onerous. Like, you had to isolate for two weeks if you the minute you landed in Thailand. So it was just impractical.
0: He was not going to be able to go at all. Yeah. yeah got it but then he could go to prep pinewood in between or was the other project also in england
1: dune was i mean they were doing remote prep like they it was it was soft prep so it was i think they did some scouting in hungary during our shoot and then a lot of the prep was remote so either in london or la like basically wherever greg was Got it. Yeah. It was that stage of prep. Like it wasn't the, it wasn't boots on the ground, hard prep yet, which was advantageous because it it, it meant that Greg was still available to work on, on the creator in the way that he did.
0: Yeah. He was still able to be mentally present. Exactly. And that's amazing. That's fantastic. So what, what, what's next for you?
1: I don't know. Yeah. Maybe call my agents and ask them if they know, cause I, (laughs) no, just kidding. No, we're looking, you know, we're, 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 we're the film is out. We are open and assessing what the next projects will be. And in the meantime, I also shoot commercials and music videos and, and short form content like that. So I've just been focusing on that. There isn't a lot of narrative work going on right now anyway, as I'm sure people yeah, can, can <laughs> assume. And uh, yeah, so things will eventually kick back into gear, probably hop on an, another project next year. And, and I don't know what it is yet, but I'm excited to find out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when I asked that question, which is just the always the end of the interview question, I forgot that no one knows what's next right now. No, nobody everyone, does.
1: <laughs> unless everyone you were, is waiting on. Yeah, unless you were already shooting something that got shut down that you need to then finish, that's pro- those are probably the only people who know for certain what's next for them, which is completing a shoot that got shut down in, in Except uh, if July. this goes on
0: long enough, some of those won't come back. Some of those will get written off. Not Correct. many, but it'll happen. It's Correct. happened before.
1: It it, so. it inevitably will. And it's 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 a it's to be honest, it's a travesty oh. and it's a real shame. And I think this whole situation has been yeah, pretty demoralizing as a filmmaker to be going through it. I mean, my heart continues to break even for our actors who are unable to promote this movie, which was a big deal for them as much as it as it was for for myself and the production designer and the VFX team, you know. And they're all just as proud of it as as we are, but they can't they can't tell anybody, (laughs) which is just is such a shame. And, you know, we all really support the strikes and support this struggle. And it's it's been it's just been a shame seeing how long it's been dragging out and yeah how little good faith negotiations have been going on despite willingness from, from the actors and writers. So anyway, well, we're, we're just hoping for a, continuing to hope for a swift resolution, no matter how long it takes. So probably not yeah. swift at this point, but certainly a satisfying resolution. And
0: we, I think now that we're in October, we're all just really hopeful that we can have a strong 24.
1: What else is there to say? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. And in the meantime, um, commercials will tide us over, but also you know the silver lining advantage of it for me at least is has been that i've been able to talk about the film and and get the film out there and and really get deep into the process of making it and 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 discuss all these technical details and the inspiration behind it and and, and there's a lot to talk about and it's a very interesting film very exciting film and i think just very interesting for filmmakers for cinematographers and i just love sharing that stuff you know i'm a, i'm a cinematography geek at heart first and foremost, right? Like that's why I became a DP because I'm I'm a nerd about films and cinematography and 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 film language and visuals and aesthetics and all of that. So, it's a real treat to be able to talk about it and to have the time to be able to talk about it. So, you know, we take the the silver linings where we can find them and and yeah, you know, hopefully as I said the, at the start people will continue discovering the film and and seeking it out and watching it and 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 continuing to show interest and curiosity in the way that we made it, which is quite unique and in the, the, the decisions and choices that were made that went into that. So I think it's, I think it's all really cool and really fun to talk about.
0: Yeah. No, thank you so much for taking all this time. I like, I I'm going to go watch the movie again and see it in a different way. Now that I have all of this perspective. So oh, fantastic! Um, it's already open. The creator, see it in a the theater, see it on a big screen. It's amazing how beautiful it is at that scale, scope and scale. And I think, a rewarding cinematic experience, so everybody should go watch it in the theaters. Thank you so much, Oren Soffer, for taking yeah. the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Great
1: to chat with you.